This podcast deals with murder and dismemberment and may be disturbing for some. Listener discretion is advised. Some dialogue in the story has been reenacted by voice actors. It's the early afternoon of October 2nd, 2018, in Istanbul, Turkey. A muezzin is belting out the adhan, or call to prayer. Its enchanting beauty echoes throughout the upscale neighborhood where the Saudi Arabian consulate is located. Journalist Jamal Khashoggi has just arrived with his fiancée, Hatice Cengiz, and is seen by surveillance cameras entering the consulate and is never seen again. The purpose of their visit was to sign marriage papers so they could wed. Instead, moments after entering the building, Khashoggi is accosted by a group of Saudi intelligence officials, asked to go into a private room on the second floor, and after refusing, is grabbed by the arm and dragged into a back room. By 4 p.m., Khashoggi had still not come out of the consulate, even though working hours were until 3.30. As such, his fiancée contacted the authorities. Khashoggi was reported missing, and an investigation began. Their investigation would reveal some horrific truths. Just four days later, the news had made its way around the world. Jamal Khashoggi had been killed while inside the consulate, with the Saudi government almost certainly involved. Just what did Jamal Khashoggi do to draw the ire of the Saudi government? How did they know what he was doing over in the U.S., what he was up to, where he would be, and just how bad was what happened to him in the consulate behind closed doors? Hint, it was pretty bad. If you haven't already subscribed to the Homicide Inc. podcast, please do so, so that you'll get notifications when we upload a new episode, and it's also a very big help with the discovery of the Homicide Inc. podcast, as the number of subscribers helps the podcast move up the rankings. Also, your review and rating of the podcast is a big help. Go ahead and click the five stars and leave a review if you like. And a quick shout out to Joss and Diana in Mexico. Thank you so much for your review of the Homicide Inc. podcast on Apple Podcasts. Much appreciated. Muchas gracias. All right, let's get back to the story. On September 18th, 2017, Jamal Khashoggi published his first column for the Washington Post, calling out a recent wave of arrests of intellectuals and religious leaders who dared to express opinions contrary to those of the Saudi leadership, and how he himself had feared for his job and freedom. Though still over a year before the actual killing, it may have been on that day that his fate was sealed. Throughout the vast majority of his career, Jamal Khashoggi was known as a man well accustomed to being on the inside, a well-connected loyalist who had been rewarded for it, a government man through and through. He served with the Saudi Arabian Intelligence Agency, and for decades he was close to the Saudi royal family, even serving as an advisor to the government. But starting in 2003, the cracks of dissent would start to show. He was dismissed by the Saudi Arabian Ministry of Information because he'd allowed a columnist to criticize a significant Islamic scholar, leading to his first self-imposed exile though still voluntary at this point. He went to London. Even there, however, he remained close to the royal family, serving as both advisor and media aide 
to a Saudi prince, while the latter was Saudi Arabia's ambassador to the United States. In 2007, he returned. But that period of peace wouldn't last long. In May of 2010, he resigned as editor-in-chief from the newspaper Al-Watan after a column was published challenging the basic Salafi premise, which is an ideology believing Islamic texts like the Quran provide the blueprint for the creation of a state. Al-Watan announced that Khashoggi was leaving to focus on his personal projects, but it's commonly accepted that he was forced out. Even after that, however, he maintained his ties with the Saudi Arabian elites, including those in its intelligence agencies. And between June 2012 and September 2016, there was a degree of normalcy, his opinion columns being regularly published by news television channel Al Arabia. Until December of 2016, Khashoggi was banned from writing in newspapers, making TV appearances, and attending conferences for criticizing U.S. President-elect Donald Trump. Khashoggi himself stated how after he spent six months silent, he feared just writing one more word would mean a death sentence. Then, in June of 2017, he relocated to the U.S., where he would start working for the Washington Post. And he started writing. Shortly after that first column in September of 2017, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman reportedly told a top aide during a conversation intercepted by American intelligence agencies that he would use a bullet on Khashoggi if he didn't return to the kingdom and end his criticism of the Saudi government. One month later, Khashoggi was at a friend's house when suddenly his phone rang. A call from back home. On the other end was Saud al-Qahtani, a top lieutenant and enforcer of the Crown Prince with a very grisly reputation, a name you don't want to see on your incoming calls. The conversation was surprisingly friendly, with Katani telling Khashoggi that public comments praising Saudi reforms, including a decision to allow women to drive, had pleased the Crown Prince, urging Khashoggi to keep riding and boasting about Muhammad's achievements. An unimaginably positive and hopeful interaction, on the surface. Underneath the worthless niceties, it was all one simple message. No matter how far you run, we're watching you. Khashoggi wouldn't be placated, challenging Katani about the plight of activists he knew had been imprisoned in the kingdom. But, as recalled by his friend, he could see Khashoggi's hand shaking while he held the phone. It wasn't over, and nothing would be forgotten. In 2020, a documentary was released, The Dissident. The film features a man called Omar Abdulaziz. In the documentary, Abdulaziz said he knew why Khashoggi was killed, saying it was because of him. Khashoggi and Abdulaziz first came in contact in 2017. Both were Saudi activists living in self-imposed exile. In 2018, Abdulaziz enlisted Khashoggi for a new project. According to him, the Saudi government employs an army of Twitter trolls charged with stifling dissent in the Saudi Twitter sphere, amplifying government propaganda and swarming critics with abuse. The idea was to fight fire with fire, 
to create their own army of Twitter accounts, specifically a legion of volunteers, each using two or three phones to manage hundreds of accounts, something that would counter the Saudi government's propaganda and promote free speech inside the kingdom. Khashoggi agreed to help fund the effort. Abdulaziz, however, had his own troubles with the Saudi government, marked as a dissident himself, and that's what would come back to doom Jamal Khashoggi. In March of 2018, two Saudi agents and one of Abdulaziz's brothers came to Montreal, where he was living, in an apparent attempt to get him to come back home. When he refused, Abdulaziz learned that two of his brothers and more than 20 of his friends had been arrested and imprisoned in Saudi Arabia. Then, at some point within the next few weeks, he was contacted by researchers at the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab. While investigating the global use of a certain spyware dubbed Pegasus, developed by surveillance company NSO Group, they were able to confirm that Abdulaziz's phone had been hacked, allowing access to his call logs, contacts, and messages. And they had a high degree of confidence that the Saudi government or its security agencies were likely responsible. One day after a report was published detailing how Abdulaziz had been targeted with Pegasus, Jamal Khashoggi disappeared inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. After Khashoggi was killed, Abdulaziz began putting the pieces together. He's now certain that it was the hack of his phone, which contained conversations between him, Khashoggi, and countless other activists, that led to his friends and brothers getting arrested and to Khashoggi getting murdered as it was through that that the Saudi government found out that Jamal was communicating with activists and dissidents, and that he had funded Abdulaziz's project. In July of 2021, it was reported that several other people close to Khashoggi had been identified as potential surveillance targets by NSO Group clients, which reportedly included the Saudis, before and after his death. Khashoggi's fiancée reportedly had her phone hacked with Pegasus spyware only four days after the murder. NSO Group has denied its technology was associated with Khashoggi's murder. At this point, it should be mentioned, though, that on the 21st of September, just 11 days before the murder, Khashoggi publicly tweeted out his support for Abdulaziz's project, known as the Bees Army. Using their first hashtag, What do you know about the bees? He tweeted, they love their home country and defend it with truth and rights. In the end, that would probably have been enough to seal his fate. As the months passed and October 2018 neared, attempts to lure and snag Jamal Khashoggi became not just more frequent, but brazen. After the killing, it was reported that U.S. intelligence had intercepted communications of Saudi officials discussing an obviously unrealized plan ordered by the crown prince to capture Jamal Khashoggi straight from his home in Virginia. Yet probably one of the most pivotal moments in causing this particular outcome of the story was a simple phone call that the crown prince's brother, Khalid bin Salman, the Saudi ambassador to the U.S., had with Khashoggi while he was looking to acquire the documents needed for his pending marriage, presumably while he was having doubts about whether or not it was safe for him to visit the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. 
During that phone call, Khalid told Khashoggi that he should go to the consulate and most importantly, give him assurances that it would be safe to do so. This wasn't the first time Khashoggi and Khalid had talked. A few months back, Khashoggi visited Prince Khalid at his office in the Saudi embassy in Washington, D.C., where Khalid asked him to come home to Saudi Arabia, saying that all was forgiven. Both Prince Khalid and a senior royal court advisor had been contacting Khashoggi for at least a year to try to persuade him to return. They had reportedly told him that, despite his outspoken criticism of Saudi leadership, he would be welcomed back warmly. The sharks had been circling for a long time, and once Khashoggi came close enough for them to smell blood, there was no chance of escape for him. On the evening of October 1, 2018, Jamal Khashoggi arrived in Istanbul. There, he apparently told a friend that he was worried about being kidnapped and sent back to Saudi Arabia. One last sound warning of his instincts that unfortunately went unheeded. Another arrival came into Istanbul that day, around 4.30 p.m., a three-person Saudi team arrived on a scheduled flight, checked into their hotels, and then visited the consulate. A bit after that, during the early hours of the 2nd, a 15-member group arrived from Riyadh on two private Gulfstream jets. In a room inside the consulate, Saud al-Qahtani addressed the group via Skype. With one unmistakably unambiguous command, he quite literally sentences Jamal Khashoggi to death. Bring me the head of the dog. What follows was secretly recorded by Turkey's National Intelligence Organization on microphones hidden inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. The tape is timestamped 1.02 p.m., 12 minutes before Khashoggi enters the consulate. The deputy commander of the hit squad can be heard asking if it's possible to put the body in a bag, to which a doctor that was present the head of forensic evidence at the Saudi General Security Department, replies no, saying that he's too heavy, too tall, adding that actually he's always worked on cadavers and knows how to cut them very well, and that even though he's never worked on a warm body, he'll manage that easily. He then goes on to describe how he normally puts on his earphones and listens to music when he cuts cadavers, sipping on his coffee and smoking in the meantime. He adds that after dismembering it, they'll wrap the parts into plastic bags, put them in suitcases, and take them out of the building. After that exchange, the commander asks whether the animal to be sacrificed has arrived. At 1.14, a member of the hit squad says, He's here. After Jamal Khashoggi was dragged into the back room inside the consulate, this actual conversation took place between him and his soon-to-be killers. It would be Jamal Khashoggi's last moments alive. Leave a message for your son. What should I tell my son? You will write a message. Let's rehearse. Show it to us. What should I say? See you soon. You will write something like, I'm in Istanbul. Don't worry if you cannot reach me. I shouldn't say kidnapped. Take your jacket off. How can such a thing take place at a consulate? 
I'm not writing anything. Cut it short. I'm not writing anything. Right heat, Mr. Jamar. Hurry up. Help us so we can help you. Because in the end, we will take you back to Saudi Arabia. And if you don't help us, you know what will happen eventually. There's a towel here. Will you have me drugged? We will put you to sleep. Khashoggi was then drugged, telling his captors, Don't keep my mouth shut. As they put a plastic bag over his head. I have asthma. Don't do it. You'll suffocate me. Sounds of struggling and suffocation are heard, with brief moments of discussion within the hit squad, questioning whether he's still moving. At one point, one of them says to keep pushing. At 1.39 p.m., the sound of an autopsy saw is heard as they begin dismembering Jamal Khashoggi's body. The procedure continues for another 30 minutes. It's then thought that the pieces of Jamal Khashoggi's body were packed into suitcases and carried out of the embassy as suggested. His remains have never been found. Yet, the most bizarre aspect of this story was saved for after the killing itself. Law enforcement surveillance footage captured a man later identified as Mustafa al-Madani leaving the Saudi consulate by the back door, wearing Khashoggi's clothes, a fake beard and glasses, a body double. The same man was later spotted at Istanbul's world-famous Blue Mosque, hours after Khashoggi was last seen alive entering the consulate. According to a Turkish official, Madani, 57, who is of similar height, age and build as Khashoggi, was used as a decoy for the journalist. He would go on to say that the video that captured Madani showed him doing just what he was brought to Istanbul for, to act as a body double. When Madani entered the consulate, he was without a beard, wearing a blue and white checked shirt and dark trousers. When he exited, he was wearing Khashoggi's dark blazer and gray shirt, opened at the collar and trousers, though crucially still the same dark pair of sneakers with white soles that he first arrived in prior to the journalist's death. According to the official, Khashoggi's clothes were probably still warm when Madani put them on. Once the secret was out, a circus of diplomatic tiptoeing followed. Saudi Arabia initially claimed that nothing at all happened, that Jamal Khashoggi had left the consulate after a few minutes or an hour. Then they admitted that he died, but said that it was during a fistfight after resisting attempts to return him to Saudi Arabia. Then they admitted that his death had been ordered, but said that it was carried out by rogue elements of the government and that the crown prince knew nothing about it. The kingdom then conducted what humanitarian experts have called a parody of justice. Of the 11 Saudis accused, eight unidentified men were charged, five of them sentenced to death, three to prison. The five men sentenced to death were low-level participants, while two of the acquitted were high-level Saudi security officials. And even those charged were legally pardoned in May of 2020 by Jamal Khashoggi's sons, who remain in Saudi Arabia and thus under threat of coercion. Khashoggi's fiancé called it a complete mockery of justice. There must, of course, always be a scapegoat, someone to publicly take the fall. And who would be the fall guy this time? None other than Saud al-Qahtani, known for his brutal reputation, a big enough name to satisfy public perception, 
caught on Skype giving the order. An easy body to throw to the wolves and hope it's meaty enough that they don't come back asking for more. Or so they would have everyone believe. Away from the public eye since 2019, the former royal advisor's name has made a recent comeback within the kingdom's social media networks, amid reports hinting at his imminent return to the heart of government. A big spectacle of moral outrage, international condemnation, promises of reform, and a movement pressuring nations to halt arms sales to Saudi Arabia, actually implemented by Germany. Yet, a few years later, the issue has been drowned in the never-ending news cycle. None of the men responsible have faced even the slightest of consequences. And according to a report in late September of this year, Germany has just okayed new arms sales to Saudi Arabia. For all the show and bluster, Jamal Khashoggi will share the same dirt as all of his nameless friends and colleagues that were quietly whisked away in the night. And here's another very interesting facet to this story. By mid-November 2018, the CIA had concluded that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, ordered Khashoggi's assassination. In the following declassified document produced by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence in 2021, titled Assessing the Saudi Government's Role in the Killing of Jamal Khashoggi, they lay out their chilling conclusions. It states, We assess that Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman approved an operation in Istanbul, Turkey, to capture or kill Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. We base this assessment on the Crown Prince's control of decision-making in the kingdom, the direct involvement of a key advisor and members of Mohammed bin Salman's protective detail in the operation, and the Crown Prince's support for using violent measures to silence dissidents abroad, including Khashoggi. Since 2017, the Crown Prince has had absolute control of the kingdom's security and intelligence organizations, making it highly unlikely that Saudi officials would have carried out an operation of this nature without the Crown Prince's authorization. At the time of the Khashoggi murder, the Crown Prince probably fostered an environment in which aides were afraid that failure to complete assigned tasks might result in him firing or arresting them. This suggests that the aides were unlikely to question Mohammed bin Salman's orders or undertake sensitive actions without his consent. The 15-member Saudi team that arrived in Istanbul on October 2, 2018, included officials who worked for or were associated with the Saudi Center for Studies and Media Affairs, CSMARC, at the Royal Court. At the time of the operation, CSMARC was led by Saud al-Qahtani, a close advisor of Mohammed bin Salman, who claimed publicly in mid-2018 that he did not make decisions without the Crown Prince's approval. The team also included seven members of Mohammed bin Salman's elite personal protective detail, known as the Rapid Intervention Force. The RIF, a subset of the Saudi Royal Guard, exists to defend the Crown Prince and answers only to him and had directly participated in earlier dissident suppression operations in the kingdom and abroad 
at the Crown Prince's direction. We judge that the members of the RIF would not have participated in the operation against Jamal Khashoggi without Mohammed bin Salman's approval. The document continues, The Crown Prince viewed Khashoggi as a threat to the kingdom and broadly supported using violent measures, if necessary, to silence him. Although Saudi officials had pre-planned an unspecified operation against Khashoggi, we do not know how far in advance Saudi officials decided to harm him. And finally, the document states, We have high confidence that the following individuals participated in, ordered, or were otherwise complicit in or responsible for the death of Jamal Khashoggi on behalf of Mohammed bin Salman. We do not know whether these individuals knew in advance that the operation would result in Khashoggi's death. And it goes on to list 18 names of the people the CIA believes were involved. And to this day, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, still maintains that he had no knowledge of this operation. And we know what that BS stands for. Well, thanks very much for tuning in to the Homicide, Inc. True Crime Podcast. A special thanks to my voice actor friends Nick Slawerski and Chris Koprowski for your contribution to this episode of the Homicide, Inc. Podcast. Thanks a lot, guys. I'd like to invite you again to rate this podcast, whether it's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. Be a pal, click the stars, and leave a review if you'd like to. This helps tremendously in getting our podcast into more ears. Thank you very much. Also, make sure you subscribe so you'll get notifications as soon as a new episode is released. And be sure to check out our Patreon campaign for exclusive Homicide Inc. podcasts that are available first to patrons. That information is in the description of this podcast. If you have a compelling true crime story you'd like me to consider investigating, please send me an email. And if you'd like to help support the production of the Homicide Inc. podcast, you can always buy us a coffee. Those details are also in the description and on the Homicide Inc. website, where you can hear all the podcasts and some other cool stuff. Well, thanks so much, and we'll see you again very soon. Ciao for now.